I'd like you to just listen to this short quote. It is as if each one of us tells a story to ourselves, about ourselves, inside our own heads. Always, all the time. That story makes us who we are. We build ourselves out of that story. Why don't you just listen to that? Each one of us tells a story about ourselves inside our own heads. That story makes us who we are. We build ourselves out of that story. With your, um, I guess, permission or acceptance, I want to start out with a story that relates to that about my own family. It happened right before I was ordained to the priesthood a long time ago, 45 years ago. My, I was studying in, here in Houston in 1970, no, I was studying, it was 1976, and my father, I got a phone call here in Houston, I was not ordained to the priesthood yet, and I got a phone call from my mom, who was just totally terrified, telling me that my dad had been diagnosed with lung cancer. And uh, anyway, the bishop here gave me permission because it was terminal. And the bishop here gave me permission to go finish my last year in Denver at a seminary so I could be close to my family. I went to Denver, and to make a long story short, later that year, my father died. It's the first funeral I ever did. I, I did it as a deacon. But that was not the worst of it. The year was 1977. And in 1977, I was ordained to the priesthood just that same year, actually 76, 77. I was ordained to the priesthood. And my mom, who had lived in her home, let me set that up, my mom had lived in her home with my dad, a great marriage. And in my family, there's three of us. I am the oldest. My brother's name is Fernando, and he's two years younger than me. And my sister's name is Elena, and she's six years younger than me. In 1977, my father died in 76. And in 77, I was ordained to the priesthood. 
In late 77, my sister got married and moved in with her husband. And my brother accepted a job in the East Coast. And all of us, my sister, my brother, my sister and my brother and my mother and father were living in the same house and I was in the seminary. Within the space of six months, <coughs> my mother lost her husband. Her son moved to Houston, where I am now. Her second son, Fernando, moved to Baltimore. And her daughter moved out close to Denver, but two hours away, to live with her husband. That woman went from being having a home filled with her family. Within the space of nine months, she lost her husband all, and the rest of her family. Not that we had died, but we were no longer there. I watched her go through one of the most harrowing things that I've ever seen anybody goes through. And that is, within a short period of time, lose totally your own identity, all of your identity. Now, why do I say that? Lose all of your identity. Because my mom had considered herself to be, first of all, my dad's wife. She defined herself as a wife. And she defined herself in relationship to a mother, as a mother to the three of us. She had defined herself before also as a Cuban. And she had defined herself with the rest of her family in Cuba. The first, the last two identities had sort of exploded before. Because in 1960, we had to leave Havana, and mom, who was extremely close to all of her family, had to leave her family, and then the place where my father could find a job, my father was an attorney in, in Denver, I mean, an attorney in Cuba, the place where he could find a job was in Denver, Colorado, where we did not know anybody. So my mom and dad moved to Denver, Colorado, and so she had lost that part of her identity, and now in 1977, she lost the rest of it. She was in her 70s, and she had nothing left of her identity. She was no longer, she was Cuban, but no friends, no Cuban culture. She had no extended family anywhere near. Her husband was dead. Her three children were grown and had left. And she was alone in her home. Now, why do I start with that kind of a 
story, which is a sad story. Because of the quote that I tell you, told you at the beginning, each one of us tells ourselves a story about who we are. And that story which is told in your own head is your sense of your self-identity. And that's what she had done. She had told herself a story. I am a Cuban woman. I am part of a family. I am a wife. And I am a mom. And that is who I am. And all of a sudden, within one year especially, that whole thing was gone. And what was the point? Where was it? Oh, what was, who was she now? Who was she? It struck me because that's the crisis that she was going through. She was going through the crisis of, who am I? What, what, why do I get up in the morning? And you see, the reason I'm speaking about that today, especially in the Feast of Pentecost, is because I think at our deepest understanding of the Holy Spirit, we always make the mistake of considering the Holy Spirit as a sort of, um, I don't know, rambunctious, you know, we always imagine people jumping up and down, screaming, you know, the Spirit is here. <coughs> I feel the Spirit. And those are not bad. They're rather superficial. But I have a hunch that those are, like I just said, the most rather superficial of the manifestations of the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, in and of himself, is the quietest of the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. Now, why do I say that? If you remember, there, there's a story in the Old Testament with Elijah, Elijah goes up to a mountain, and in that mountain he enters a cave. And in that cave he begins to pray, and God reveals to him that he will be passing by the mouth of the cave. And Elijah goes to the mouth of the cave, and the first thing he experiences is thunder and lightning. And he looks to see if God is there. And God was not in the thunder and lightning. And then he experiences a tremendous earthquake. And he looks around to see if God is in the earthquake. And God is not in the earthquake. And then he hears a small, barely audible, whispering sound. 
and he covered his face because he could not see God and live. Elijah experienced God not in the wonders of life, but in the small whispering sound that was barely audible. What does that have to do with my mom and with her experience? Mom had, and as I've seen it many times in other people before, had experienced her identity the way most of us do, as a wife, as a mother, as her national identity, as her family. And yet, in a very short while, all of those had been removed. All of them. And she faced the chasm of emptiness, of not having any idea who she was. And so the question that always ends up, why? Why does God allow for that to happen? Why does God allow, notice I said he doesn't do it, he allows it, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Now, don't, don't get excited. I don't know the answer. But I do know that I see one of the effects that happens when that is allowed. You see, what mom had to do, what she had to experience the emptiness and stare into the emptiness, into the chasm of nothingness before in the midst of the chasm of nothingness she could begin to hear a small whispering sound. Her most profound identity. Because you see, all those identities that she had had, the identity of being a mom and a wife and a Cuban and family and all of that, they were okay. But they're only temporary. Because until you focus yourself to experience your identity, first and foremost, in the creator who created you, you will not be standing on solid ground. You will be standing on ground which will move, which will fall apart right under your feet. Why? Because if you're married, your wife, your husband will die. Your children will move. Your body will grow old. 
you will no longer be tremendously sought after, especially in our culture. Every time I go to the nursing homes, I see the products of that. And so the question when, when that will happen, unless you happen to die before, which, by the way, if you happen to die before, it will still happen. Because the moment you die, you're no longer married. Did you know that? Do you remember that? Jesus said, there is no marriage or given in heaven. Until death do you part. The moment you die, you're no longer married. The moment you die, you're no longer a mother or a father. Your national identity is gone. All of the hooks, all of the topics that were part of the story that you constantly told yourself in your own head that you were, disappear even quicker than they did for my mom. And then you will stare into the chasm and you will say to yourself, who am I? And that is when you will hear a small whispering sound. Judgment, by the way, is when you accept or reject that small whispering sound, which is the Holy Spirit showing you your true identity. And inside that Holy Spirit, you will reconnect with everybody else. The problem is not the relationships in your life. The problem is that we're too used to clinging to them and without knowing it, violating the first commandment. I bet you didn't expect that one coming. Violating the first commandment. What is the first commandment? You should not, the, the commandment, actually not the first, the commandment that Jesus gave us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Jesus expounded on that and he said, if you love your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, your sons, your daughter, your family, if you love anyone more than me, you are not worthy of me. Now, we try not to, and I'm speaking about myself too, but we don't understand that until those relationships in one way or another disappear. And then you're left staring at the hole that they created where they were. It's interesting because this always reminds me of a story in, this, in the scriptures, which I find one of the better stories that it, it helps me to understand this. Do you remember when Jesus, the story of when Jesus is risen from the dead, and Martha goes to the tomb. 
And she looks inside and she sees that the tomb is, em is empty. She doesn't realize that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so she, <coughs> excuse me, she looks outside and she sees that there's a guy who seems to be a gardener. And she says to the gardener, Sir, sir, if you have taken his body away, please tell me where you have laid it so that I can, uh, so that I can bring it for burial. And the guy looks at her, and Mary doesn't recognize him. And so the guy looks at her and says just her name, Mary. At that moment, Mary recognizes that it is Jesus. And so what she does is she runs towards him, throws herself on her knees at his feet, and grabs him like that around his lower legs and squeezes him. Now, the story that impresses me is not that part. That part of the story is now what impresses me. Is what Jesus says to her. What Jesus says to her that is just bizarre. You see, if somebody thought you were dead and then they see you and you're alive and you, they go and run to you and hug you and hold you tight, what would you normally say? I had that experience once. I, when I was in my first assignment at St. Benedict's Catholic Church, on a Friday night, it got around the parish that I had been murdered. And that Sunday when I sh showed up, for Mass, people were quite taken aback that I was alive. And people were coming up to me and hugging me and, you know, Father, Father, we thought you were dead. And I remember what I said. People were crying and stuff like, we thought you were dead. And I remember saying, it's okay, it's okay, I'm alive. It was another priest by the name of Mario in another diocese. It wasn't me. But I had to calm people down. I think I responded normally. Now compare what I think is normal, calming people down, to what Jesus says to Mary. He doesn't calm her down. He says to her, quote, four words. I was counting them. Five. He says to her, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, Go and tell my disciples I will see them in Jerusalem, or Galilee, I think it was. Now, why does he say, do not cling to me? 
You see, Mary was saying something by her body language. What was her body language? She was throwing herself at his feet and grabbing him, and her body language was saying, I thought I had lost you, and now I know that I did not, and I'm not letting you go. I'm clinging to you. I will not let you go. What was Mary saying in effect? In effect, she was saying, I want you back. I want to go back to what we were. I want you, I'm not letting you go. And Jesus was responding to her saying, I want you back. And he said, in effect, he said, you can't have me back. Now notice that that's only the first part. Do not cling to me. That's the negative. What's the next statement? I have not yet ascended to my father. In effect, Jesus was saying, "Do you, Mary, you cannot have me back but you can have me forward. The relationship hasn't ended, but your relationship with me has to be transformed into the way that relationships run in the kingdom of heaven. Because you see, the whole meaning of the resurrection is that your relationships don't end, but they are transformed. I have, not, I have not yet ascended to my Father. You can't have me back, but you can have me forward. So why do I put that so much, so much attention into that? Because what my mom was doing was exactly the same thing. And what you will do, and what I will do when I lose the people I love, you and I will do exactly the same thing. It will be hell. It will be hard when you lose somebody you love. And what do you want to do? You want them back. You want them back. You want things to be the way they used to be. And you are going to hear that same little voice saying, do not cling to me. What you're hearing is that the relationship will go on, but it goes on in a different way. Because it goes on in Jesus. Not outside of Jesus. In Christ. Because when you enter into heaven, where Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may also be. We will know each other in heaven. 
But the relationship won't be like it is here, clingy, clingy. In heaven, we will have gone through the purgatory. Notice I use that word. The purgatory of not being able to cling. But we will see each other without having to cling. Because we will be in the Father's home. And when we're in the Father's home, there is no need to cling because no one's going anywhere. We will be in the Father's home. In closing, I want to say, just look at the, this part of the gospel. This is actually the part, that's why I have this here, the part of the gospel that inspired this whole thing for me. The second paragraph. Jesus begins the gospel, the first paragraph. If you love me, keep my words. But listen to the second, beginning second sentence of the second paragraph. Whoever loves me will keep my word. Now listen to this. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our dwelling place with him or with her. And we will come to her and make our dwelling place with her. So what's at the bottom of that hole that is left inside? My father and I have been there in a small, still voice at the bottom of that chasm that you thought was empty. And when you fall into that chasm, you will find your father, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit waiting to catch you. And at that moment that you've gone through the purgatory of not clinging, you will slowly begin to get a taste for how to have relationships in the kingdom of God. Because that's what the Holy Spirit has become to do. Whoever loves me will keep my word, and my Father and I will love her, and we will come to her and make our dwelling place with her. And when God comes and makes his dwelling place with you, you learn that all those loving relationships that you had in the world are still there. They haven't gone anywhere. You just don't have to live with the anxiety that you might have to lose them. That anxiety is gone. That, my friends, is the chief gift of the Holy Spirit. The removal of the anxiety and the fulfillment of the love that you have had for every single person. My mom will regain her husband. Won't be her husband anymore. But she loved, they will love each other as friends. She will re regain her relationship with her kids, with her family. 
and she will no longer have to live with the anxiety that she will lose them. And don't we all live with that anxiety? That's constant. I'm a worry wart, so I live with that constant anxiety. I look forward to not having to do that. That is the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit. There are many in which I could have focused on, but Pentecost to me is the reassurance of an eternity of love without anxiety.